Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Before this week's podcast, I want to tell you about Room Now Live, an exciting new meeting co-hosted by myself and Artie Cavanaugh. And we want to invite you to this exciting new meeting that's going to occur March 22 through 24 in 2019 in beautiful downtown Fort Worth, Texas. Easy to get to, um, a wonderful walkable town. If you've never been to Fort Worth, it is truly distinctive and a real slice of life in the United States. It's a great meeting destination. I think you'll find this to be a great meeting. This is going to be a meeting that we've been working on for over a year. It is the next generation of meetings, meaning it is designed to basically meet the needs of the audience and to have a much greater impact. It is designed to be highly interactive. It's gonna be formatted in a different way. It's gonna be pre-meeting learning assignments between you and the faculty who will communicate with you starting six weeks before the meeting. There's going to be an app that you're going to use during the meeting that'll keep you in connection with each other who are in attendance and also with the faculty. We'll use that for, again, highly interactive sessions. Our sessions aren't hour-long sessions. They're only 30 minutes long. And we're going to have what we call pods or dedicated sessions for rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, lupus, vasculitis, drug safety, and orthopedics. And in those pods, two-hour sessions, you're going to have two or three half-hour lectures, and you're going to end it with a half-hour panel discussion. They'll be moderated, and we're going to take questions from the apps, questions from the audience, questions from people viewing in from the outside. This is a highly digital meeting. There's digital downloads. There's crosstalk. There's, again, a lot of facets to this that you've never seen before that'll make this a really unique and interactive experience. I think you'll be excited by what we're going to produce. You can go to roomnow.live to read more about this and to register. It's going to be 16 plus hours of CME uh, and a fabulous faculty that I'll tell you more about in subsequent weeks. But first, what about the news this week? Should you be monitoring immunoglobulins in patients on rituximab? What really is the best test for carpal tunnel syndrome? And did you know that the three, that the First rheumatologists were, in fact, the three wise men who visited the baby Jesus. More on that. So we'll begin with a, a literature review that talks about dactylitis and what works well. A systemic review of the literature came up with the following, that the drugs that seem to work very well in dactylitis include ustekinumab, the IL-17 inhibitors, ixekizumab and secukinumab, adalimumab, and aprimolast, meaning that there's good evidence from those clinical trials that those work. Working um, almost as well would include clazakizumab, abatacep, and tofacitinib. Not so good the other IL-17 inhibitor, bradalumab, but that did have uh, trial, trouble with other trials as well. What about lupus and, uh, and pregnancy? An interesting abstract was presented at ACR a few, uh, about a month ago now from Bella Metta from HSS, and she actually looked at the National Inpatient Database uh, over a 16-year period, looking at 87,000 87, lupus pregnancies and a matched cohort, and found, not surprisingly, but now good data for a higher rate of the following in lupus patients. Higher rates of C-sections, higher rates of intrauterine fetal death, preeclampsia, eclampsia, venous thromboembolic events, chronic kidney disease, hypertension, and, and longer hospital stays. A lot of these actually did improve over time as lupus care improved over time, but those are the data and suggests what the challenge really is in lupus. So carpal tunnel syndrome, we all do what? Thump, 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 
the Tunnel sign or the, the Phelan sign? Well, it turns out that those don't perform very well. A recent analysis of over 500 patients who were tested in all kinds of ways for the diagnosis of proven carpal tunnel syndrome says that actually the best thing is probably the Durkin test. It turns out that um, the Tunnel sign really was very poorly sensitive and not very specific. The most specific was phenar atrophy and the Durkin sign. What is the Durkin's uh, test? The Durkin's test is when you take both thumbs and put it over the median nerve and squeeze. And then the induction of either pain and or numbness in the distribution of the median nerve within 30 seconds is a positive Durkin's test. That seems to actually be the te best test to diagnose carpal tunnel syndrome. So again, the numbers actually were, uh, I have it here, uh, theater atrophy and sensory loss were the most specific um, and thenar atrophy had the lowest sensitivity though. So it's not seen very often, but when you have thenar atrophy, not so good. Again, Tenel signed the lowest specificity of 40% and, and, and the lowest um, negative predictive value. An interesting study looked at Bichette syndrome and this comes from, again, um, uh, Korea and in Southeast Asia, they have more Bichettes and maybe it's different than what we see in the United States, but I was intrigued by some of the numbers here and the numbers were low. But basically, this is the data. They looked at the, the risk of cancer in patients with Bichette's, and they found a, a, somewhere between a 24 and a 34-fold higher rate of uh, hematologic malignancy, especially myelodysplasia and leukemia, versus the general population, and an overall higher rate of cancer in women with Bichette's disease um, and colon involvement compared to men. Now, again, the issue there is we're looking at Bichette's disease with colon involvement specifically, not just sores in the mouth and, and genital area, but with colon involvement, and there's a much higher association. Now, we do know that other chronic inflammatory conditions that involve the colon are also associated with risk of cancer, so it's not surprising. Although the numbers are low here, and they actually, if you do literature search, you'll see this kind of data out there. It may be something we should think about in our patients uh, outside of Japan and, and, and Korea. Uh, so I know this is not rheumatology, but I think it's great because we tell our patients things because things we were told to tell them, including if you have heart failure, low salt diet. Again, a big meta-analysis in JAMA showed this week that there's limited evidence, really no evidence, showing that the benefit that of reducing dietary salt in the control and management of heart failure patients. Uh, again, this speaks to being careful about the data the, and knowing the data when talking in, uh, to patients and giving them advice about how to avoid disease. Um, really shocking data. I know that you're kind of sick of hearing about opioid crises and opioid overdose deaths, but again, a recent DEA report is another head slapper. Um, 2017, 72,000 opioid-related overdose deaths. And do the math, that's about 200 deaths per day. Just shocking. And it's led by heroin, fentanyl, other opioids, methamphetamines, and again, and cocaine is in there. But there's also a lot of adulterated fentanyl and a lot of adulterated drugs in there that are causing the problem. Uh, a very interesting study comes from Haiyan Choi and his colleagues in um, the partners database out of the, the Harvard hospitals. And they looked at the, the value of immunoglobulins in monitoring for um, rituximab toxicity. Specifically, it looked at about somewhere less than 5,000 patients in the partners database and showed first that 85% had no monitoring of immunoglobulin at all. I'm, I'm guilty. I must say that I don't do that. 
when you ask rheumatologists, and you're not supposed to do it per the package insert. The package insert says monitor for infection risk, monitor for cytopenias. They don't say anything about looking at immunoglobulin levels, but it does say that low immunoglobulins may portend the risk of infection. So again, should we worry about this or not? Turns out that the rheumatologists who do regular monitoring of immunoglobulins tend to be the allergy uh, immunology rheumatologists, Artie Kavanaugh, Bing Bingham, you know, they really think it's a, it's a good idea and you gotta listen to smart guys like that. But what's the data? Well, it turns out that a high, again, while immunoglobulin levels aren't changed all that much by, and certainly rheumatoid factor and CCP early on are not changed all that much by giving rituximab, over time it does appear that those will drop. Uh, in their data set, they found that of the 15% who actually did immunoglobulin levels, they did find in almost half the patients um, uh, hypogammaglobulinemic, uh, hypogammaglobulinemia after taking rituximab. And that after, in that scenario, there was a higher risk of infection. So wh what is the data here and, 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 and is there more to this? Well, it, we did report on this before, Ron van Vollenhoffen's um, cumulative study of of the clinical trials with rituximab and RA basically showing that when you monitor, there doesn't seem to be any value to finding low IgM values, but that, which is seen in about a quarter of the patients, but that IgG values being below the lower limits of normal was found both prior to giving rituximab and after rituximab. In either instance, it was associated with a significant increased risk of SIE, serious infectious events. Um, Without knowing that data, the overall rate was around three and a half per 100 patient years, serious infections. But that when you were hypogammaglobulinemic for IgG, again, only 4%, that there was a significant doubling, almost 8% risk of an SIE. Should you be doing it? Well, that's the data. Again, there's no clear guideline. I think it may be wise to get pre-treatment and post-treatment IgG levels to know what to do going forward. What they did show in the Boston data set was that for those individuals who went on to receive supplemental gamma globulin, they also showed that that significantly reduced the, reduced the rate of infections that ensued. Important to know. Um, what about non-steroidals? Interesting data about non-steroidals uh, and the risk of uh, side effects, especially in high-risk patients. Now we all know the risk of non-steroidals and this particular study is a little bit slanted, a little unique. It's a two different large claims data from Canada looking at over you know, a half million primary care visits and um, a total of 800,000 plus patients, older patients who also had either hypertension, heart failure or chronic kidney disease. And that found that 10% of these were prescribed non-steroidals. That's 80 plus thousand people who maybe shouldn't be getting non-steroidals, were getting non-steroidals. And in their match cohort analysis of 35,000 who were on non-steroidals, who had these comorbidities, and then compared to those who were not exposed to non-steroidals, they actually showed in the short term, between seven and 35 days of follow-up, there was no increased rates of cardiac complications, less than 1%, renal complications, 0.1% for both, and death, 0.1% for both, suggesting that in the short term, non-steroidal use may not be that hazardous. Now, they may be looking at the wrong outcomes here, right? It may be that they should be looking at longer-term outcomes, um, and, and we certainly know that that's going to be the case if you follow them long enough. But if you're intending only to use them for short-term use, like in the case of gout, where you might use them for short-term use, maybe that's okay. 
A real big brouhaha in the literature and the news this week is the FDA's um, decision to approve the new super opioid called Desuvia, D-S-U-V-I-A. This is Sufentanil. It's a sublingual tablet. It was approved on November 2nd, uh, indicated for the use of acute pain management in, that's severe enough to require opioid analgesic use in adults in certified medically supervised healthcare settings. Are you kidding me? Did you just hear about the data? We talked about 200 deaths a day due to uh, opioids, and now the FDA is approving another one. Here's the real slap, head slapper that this drug is five to, five to 10 times stronger than fentanyl and up to a thousand times stronger than morphine. And the, actually, the FDA, the, the FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, came out with a big position paper on defending this, saying that, again, there are instances where patients may not be able to swallow a pill, as a sublingual pill, or may not have IV access, and they were working with the Department of Defense for battlefield use of this kind of medicine, I don't think this is going to be used too much on the battlefield as much as it's going to be used on the battlefields of being, you know, inner city places and people who want to abuse a drug. That's the big concern here. Big pushback from a lot of people. I'll end with a discussion of three wise men and why they're likely to be rheumatologists. They came and again, they visited the baby Jesus, I think, around the Christmas Eve. That's what I'm told. Um, they came bearing what? Gold? The rheumatologist's best drug be prior to methotrexate, frankincense and myrrh. What the heck are those anyway? Turns out that myrrh is uh, often an ingredient. It's a, it's a fragrance. It's often an ingredient included in um, in toothpaste and dental products and whatnot. Again, the perfect drug for those who have periodontal disease, which, as we know, is a significant risk factor for rheumatoid arthritis. And frankincense, guess what? Frankincense is derived from the Boswellia plants. Boswellia has actually got a th three or four different kinds of plants. And one of the most uh, common extracts of that is Boswellia serrata. It's an Ayurvedic medicine that's purported to have these anti-inflammatory properties. If you look it up, there's a number of pilot trials showing it does seem to work in osteoarthritis. And probably not before it's anti-inflammatory, but maybe pain-leaving properties. It does in, 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 in experimental situations inhibit 5-lipoxygenase and maybe prostaglandins. Again, rheumatologists, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, there we were and where we've been ever since. I'll end with the, the advice, what is a great doctor? Again, we've talked about this before. Um, in listening to patients recently, I came to the conclusion a great doctor is someone who either cares and also shows their personality. Being dispassionate, know-it-all, do what I say, doesn't seem to work. That's it for this week. Go to the website to get these links and more. Bye.